our first Bible reading is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verses 12 to 18. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, wait ye for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the eleventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. Our second Bible reading is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Those ended the reading of the law. May the words of my lips and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Emile Coué, the French psychologist and pharmacist, popularized a famous mantra, 
Say it with me if you know it. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. Every day and in every way, I'm getting better and better. Kue encouraged his patients to repeat this to themselves 20 times a day as part of his psychoanalytical technique called optimistic autosuggestion. The idea was that positive reinforcement of optimistic belief could have genuine health benefits. And strangely enough, at a medical level, he may have been onto something, as the placebo effect is now well documented. When people believe something to be helpful, they will often show some measurable improvement. I tend to think that something like this lies behind many of the stories of faith healing that get told, both within Christianity and beyond it. People believe that prayer for healing works, and so, at least to some extent, it does. I mean, I've never seen someone grow an arm back after being prayed for, but I can understand how people might show improvement in other, perhaps less tangible ways after being prayed for. And interestingly, Kue's trick, as he called it, was consistent with the idea of social Darwinism as it was popularized in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Social Darwinism was an extension of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection, where the biological concept of the survival of the fittest becomes a model for understanding the development of society and any individual who lives within it. Social Darwinism is not the same thing as Darwinism, it's an extension of it. And social Darwinism finds its origins with Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, as he was sometimes known. And Huxley took Darwin's theory of the origin of species and made it into a kind of philosophical model to explain human society without the need for belief in God. So Huxley, the famous agnostic, almost single-handedly created the division between Christianity and evolution that comes down to us till this day, with many Christians today still believing Huxley's assertion that it is incompatible with their faith to accept an old earth evolutionary understanding of the origin of humanity. Huxley was unwittingly aided and abetted in this by the then Bishop of Oxford, Samuel Wilberforce, whose famous jibe at Huxley as to whether Huxley was descended from an ape on his mother's side or his father's side, did much to create the animosity between faith and science that still live with us today. Sometimes, honestly, Christians really are their worst enemies. Huxley won the debate with Wilberforce replying that he would rather be descended from an ape than to be a man who misused his great talents to suppress debate. And I think on this and indeed on many other things, Huxley actually had a point. You see, I'm one of those who thinks that evolution by natural selection is a perfectly adequate model for explaining the biological adaptation and speciation we can observe in the natural world. I just don't see any conflict between it and my faith in God or my understanding of the Bible. But what I don't like is social Darwinism, the use of evolution metaphors for societal and spiritual development, because I simply don't think it's true that every day, in every way, we're getting better and better.
Surely the First World War was ample proof of the human capacity to descend into the hellish madness of war at the drop of a hat. And the links between social Darwinism and the eugenics programs of the Third Reich are terrifying and deeply chilling. I have occasionally joked that I do wonder if the fact that I was born with no wisdom teeth means that I'm part of the next evolution of humanity. But it turns out this is simply a recessive mutation that arose within humans about 300,000 years ago. Or, as some have suggested, Liz, uh, it may just be indicative of the fact that I have no wisdom. With all of this in mind, then, what on earth is going on at the Transfiguration? What strange new humanity is coming into being here? Our story, read for us so beautifully by Solomon and originally told for us by Matthew, draws on the very similar story in, in Mark's Gospel, but the lecture on the relationship between the Gospels is one for another day. And here we find this describing, this description of Jesus and three of his disciples going up a mountain to have a very strange experience indeed. Uh, if you go to Israel, did I mention, some of us did last year, uh, you can go to the place called uh, the Mount of the Transfiguration. As with many of these ancient sites, it's quite spurious really. And I, I, I'm quite drawn to the idea that the, the site for the setting of this story might actually be Mount Hermon, which is somewhere north of Galilee. Uh, it's the only mountain in the area that has a, a snow cap. And you can actually see it from Galilee if the, if the weather is clear. Um, it, it makes a lot of sense of, you know, the, the white everywhere and the need to build little booths and huts, maybe to protect Moses and Elijah and Jesus from the cold. Who knows? Anyway, the disciples go up the mountain and they have this experience. Listen to Matthew's words again. And Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. As I said, what on earth is going on here? There are a number of clues in the text to which we need to pay attention if we're going to get to grips with what Matthew's trying to do by telling us this story. So the first thing to realize is that this description of Jesus um, being transfigured with a shining white face and clothes going white, um, this is not unique in the Bible. Rather, it's drawing on a long tradition, stretching back into ancient Judaism, of people receiving visions of God in human form and of people encountering the divine presence on mountaintops. So we heard in our first reading the story of Moses going up a mountain to meet God and receive tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments written on them. If we'd read a bit further on in the book of Exodus, we would have heard that when Aaron and the Israelites saw Moses coming back down from the mountain, the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put a veil on his face until he went back up the mountain to speak with God. So it seems that in some way, Moses' encounter with God on the top of the mountain changed Moses' appearance. It changed something about the nature of his being. We might say that Moses of old was transfigured 
by his encounter with God on Mount Sinai. But it's not just Moses on Sinai that lies behind Matthew's story of the transfiguration of Jesus. In Daniel's vision of heaven, he describes how, and I'm just going to read Daniel 7 verse 9 here, he describes how thrones were set in place and an ancient one took his throne, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire. The use of the color white here in Daniel is very deliberate. It's often used in the Bible to indicate righteousness and purity. So, for example, in the book of Acts, we get the story of the ascension of Jesus told in very similar terms. Two angels in white robes stand beside the disciples, and in Acts chapter 1 verse 9 we read, When Jesus had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were uh, while he was going and they were gazing up towards heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood beside them. And actually, in Matthew's Gospel itself, chapter 13, we read Jesus saying that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And in Matthew's version of the resurrection story, told in similarly dramatic and apocalyptic tones, we read, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it, and his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. Are you seeing a picture building up here, both in the Old Testament and in Matthew's Gospel and in the book of Acts? When people encounter God, something changes. And the language of being white or having a shining face is all part of that description of what happens to people when they meet God in a new way. If we fast forward to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we get there several descriptions of both the divine human figure called the Son of Man and those who follow him all wearing white shining clothes which indicate their righteousness. Just a few verses for you. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire and his face was like the sun shining with full force. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Around the throne, the 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are the 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. After this I looked and there was a great multitude no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They've washed their robes. They have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And the armies of heaven wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. My point here is that Matthew is not telling us the story of the transfiguration of Jesus in a vacuum. There are lots of other stories that sound quite like this one. From Exodus and Moses to the book of Daniel to elsewhere in the Jesus tradition to the apocalyptic literature, both biblical and non-biblical. 
the story Matthew gives us of the transfiguration of Jesus is part of a wider literary tradition of humanity transfigured through encounter with the divine. Or to put it another way, when people meet with God, something profound and tangible changes within them. Now, don't hear me wrong here. I don't think Jesus was or even is the next evolution of humanity. His transfiguration was not some kind of fusion of the physical and the spiritual, resulting in an ability to exist on a higher plane than the rest of us mere mortals. Neither was it a mystical experience for us to seek to emulate in the, some quest for enlightenment or esoteric knowledge. That way lies heresy, I'm afraid. But nonetheless, I do think there is a new humanity coming into being in Christ. And it is revealed in the story of his transfiguration. St. Paul, I think, was onto this when he described Jesus as the new or second Adam. The first Adam, the first human from the Genesis story. Paul says Jesus is the second Adam. Listen to how he puts it in his letter to the Romans. This is Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, much more, surely, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as the one man's disobedience led to the many being sinners, so the one man's obedience, by this will the many be made righteous. Contrasting Adam who sinned and Jesus who dies for the forgiveness of sins. Paul places Jesus in contrast with Adam, the symbolic first human. Humanity came into being through Adam and the new humanity comes into being through the new Adam, which is the son of man, which is the Messiah who is transfigured in the presence of his disciples on the mountaintop in Matthew's story. But hear this and hear it clearly because it does matter. This is not about evolution, either biological or social. It's about transfiguration. The new humanity that comes into being in Christ Jesus does not arise by natural forces red in tooth and claw, as Tennyson put it, from the redundant carcass of the old humanity. It does not outcompete its predecessor, nor does it vanquish it by might and right. Rather, the new humanity that comes into being in Christ arises by grace and through love. It emerges in the midst of our sinful, fallen state as a gift from God that transfigures our lives and our world. Because God in Christ is at work transfiguring humanity. That is you and it is me. A new way of being human has come into being in Christ. And it has the capacity to utterly transform our way of being in the world. The clues were all there for us in Matthew's text 
which we as we have seen is rich with the resonance of ancient stories telling of God's journey with humans from their very beginning to this crucial decisive moment of transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop the mystical moment on the mountain occurs we are told in the first verse of our story on the sixth day and if you know your Hebrew Bible, you cannot miss the echo of the creation story from Genesis here. According to the ancient myth, God created humanity on the sixth day, before then resting on the seventh. And in Matthew's story, the new humanity in Christ is brought into being on the sixth day. Jesus is here being presented as the new Adam, just as Paul has him in Romans. Then the transfigured Jesus is seen talking with Moses and Elijah, whose symbolic presence speak of the law because Moses was the lawgiver and the prophets, Elijah, the prince of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. The law and the prophets are fulfilled in the presence of the transfigured son of man. Matthew is wanting us to grasp that the whole of human history from Adam to Moses to Elijah is here in this story contained and completed in this moment and the whole story of human attempts to encounter God is reflected in the glory shining from the face of Jesus from creation itself and the first Adam to Elijah and the prophets to Moses and the law and it all comes down for Matthew to this one moment on the mountaintop with Jesus and three of his disciples. Like, like the narrowest point in the egg timer of history, the past funnels through to the future by this one moment of transfiguration. And in that moment on a mountaintop, the new humanity is born. The second Adam is transfigured from base human flesh in the company of history and baffled disciples. And it's not about genetics. It's about inheritance, which is very different. It's about covenant, not country. And any nation, tribe, or people who try to claim exclusive or privileged access to the revelation of God in Christ are missing the point of the transfiguration. From God bless America to God save the king to one nation under Allah, God will never be so constrained. Because God's people are all people. God's people is humanity transfigured. And we, all we need to do to see it to see our own place within it is open our eyes and look to the mountain and see the moment of glory reflected in the face of Jesus. Think of Paul's vision of Christ on the road to Damascus, opening his eyes to the one who appeared to him as a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around him and his companions. And what Paul realized in his moment of personal transfiguration, as his eyes were blinded to his old life and opened to his new one, was that God would not be confined to one people. Paul, until 
the roads to Damascus had been intent on narrowing God down, keeping God to his people. And then his eyes were opened in the moment of transfiguration to the realization that the call of God goes way beyond any chosen nation to encompass all the nations of the Gentiles as well as the people of the Jews. And so Christianity as we know it was born and Paul set off on his mission and journeys to change the world. And I think this brings us to today, to a gospel with no barriers, no exclusions. It brings us to the freely given love of God, extended to all people of every nation from all tribes and languages and peoples, all genders, ethnicities, backgrounds and sexualities. This is the new humanity that comes into being in Christ. We are it. We are this new humanity. We are the heirs to the transfiguration. And we don't worship a parochial God who exists to serve us and those like us. And neither do we follow a partisan God who is defined over and against the wisdom of science. Honestly, I have had it with little Christianity. You know the kind. Me and my Christian mates, we're the only ones that are right and the rest of the world is wrong and is going to go to hell. Well, blow that for a game of soldiers, friends. That is not what Christianity is about. God is so much bigger than that. And in Christ, at the moment of transfiguration, God is revealed as so much bigger than that. And yeah, the disciples didn't get it. They decided they were going to try and build some little huts for Jesus and Moses and Elijah to live in. They exemplified the human response. The whole of history had come down to this moment and the disciples said, I know, let's build some little huts so that Jesus and his mates can live with us and we can be his special mates and he can be ours. They just wanted to take this grand moment and reduce it to something they could keep and contain. And like the disciples on the mountaintop, Christians today keep trying to take the big revelation of God for all people in all places and all times and squeeze that God down to something smaller. They make God our God, a God who can go with us and stay with us and dwell with us and prove that we're right and everyone else is wrong. And you only have to look at the arguments that are tearing the Church of England apart around sexuality to see examples of that on both sides. And friends, we are not immune from those divisions within the Baptist world either. But this is not what it's about. It's not about God of this nation or that nation or this people or that people or this denomination or that denomination or this religion or that religion. This is not... God over creation, this is God in creation, transforming it from within. This is not a philosophy of gradual, optimistic self-improvement. We don't become the new humanity by just mutually encouraging ourselves, by singing our happy mantra songs, whether to the guitar or the pipe organ. This is a gospel of the radical transformation of humanity, without which there is no hope. Because this is the transfiguration of us all. 
as we in turn come to reflect the transfiguration of the Son of Man. This is us. We are humanity transfigured. And friends, so are they. And our task is to proclaim the truth that there is a bigger, wiser, more gracious, more loving God than any of us have ever grasped. This is why it really matters that in this building this week we launch the Racial Justice Advocacy Forum. This is why it matters that King's College London held an evensong for the 10th anniversary of the Same-Sex Marriage Act. God is bigger than the divisions we keep trying to write into God. And in Jesus transfigured, we meet the whole of humanity transfigured before God, lifted up to God. We are ourselves caught up in that moment. This is our calling and it is our only hope. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ and we should live it. This is Christ transfigured for our sake and for the sake of the world. Amen. Let's quieten our hearts as we come before God. God of hope, we thank you this morning for what we have heard in Simon's sermon of how when people meet with you something profound and tangible changes within them. Loving God, as we bow before you now, we ask that we too may be touched afresh by this encounter with you. May it not be just a story in the Bible, but a reality for each of us as individuals and as a community, that we too can be changed through our relationship with you. We acknowledge for you as individuals and as a community that we have fallen short of the model for living as shown to us in the life of Jesus. We spend a few moments in silence acknowledging this. We thank you that you are a God of mercy and forgiveness. May we come away from this and all our encounters with you with faces shining with joy as we experience afresh your grace and cleansing. We ask that you would strengthen us now through your Holy Spirit. Help us to choose life, to give ourselves to you with all our hearts and minds and souls. Help us to live out the vision of you that we have heard about today, loving God. That you are a God big enough to embrace the whole universe with your love. Indeed, may we somehow grasp how you indwell all things, every atom and subatomic particle, every planet and, and galaxy. You are everywhere and in everything. How can we therefore diminish you when we try to limit your grace and love? Help us, patient God, not to want to build little shelters for you where we can keep you to ourselves as if that were possible. Open our eyes, healing God, to see a world that is crying out for your love. Help us, God of the Bible, called as those people of faith 
like them, to live out each day as witnesses to your love, to those around us in lives of service. We thank you for the miracle of transformation that you have persistently worked in human lives since ancient times. Remind us daily that we are on the same journey with you as all who have gone before us. O merciful God, at this challenging time in human history, we ask that you would energize and equip us to serve this generation in whatever way you are calling us. We pray for the nations of the United Kingdom at this time of political uncertainty. We pray particularly for the nation of Scotland following the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon as the first minister. Grant that a leader of vision and integrity will be chosen to replace her. We pray for the government in Westminster in the face of so many challenges, both national and international, that those who lead the UK may rule with wisdom and integrity and pursue policies of justice and peace. God of peace, as the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine approaches, we pray for all the representatives of the international community who are working uh, towards peace, but also to find ways of supporting Ukraine as it responds to Russian aggression. Even now, God, we pray that peace may come in the place of conflict. And we pray for all those who are suffering as a result of the war, whether Ukrainian or Russian. God of mercy, we cry out to you on behalf of the people of Southwest Turkey and of Syria, following the devastating earthquake in that region earlier this week. We pray for all those that mourn the loss of loved ones, that they may be comforted. We pray for the international aid effort, for the rebuilding of lives and communities. We pray for the political situation in Turkey as an election approaches later this year. We pray that democracy may prevail. We pray for your mercy uh, on the region of Syria affected by the earthquake. We pray that aid may get through despite hostility to the region by the Assad government. And at this time of climate emergency, we see devastating natural disasters around the world almost constantly. Loving God, we pray for New Zealand after the cyclone um, and for so many other countries that still uh, are recovering from floods uh, causing global, uh, global warming, such as Pakistan. We also remember those parts of the world where conflicts continue that are often forgotten. For Myanmar, we pray for the former leader Aung San Suu Kyi imprisoned on trumped up charges and for the continued repression of opposition, that you may bring peace and justice to them. And for the Yemen, where years of warfare have resulted in mass famine. And we pray particularly for those known to us in Bloomsbury in Palestine. God of justice, we ask that you would bring a lasting peace and justice there. We pray for our friends at the YM Center in Bethlehem as they seek to follow uh, you, Prince of Peace and for all the other Palestinians that we met and know, that you may stand with them and that we may too. Finally, merciful God, we pray for our church community here at Bloomsbury. We thank you for all those in leadership and the many who serve in different ways. We pray that you would grant them grace and wisdom 
as they faithfully and often sacrificially give their time and energy in service of the church. Gracious God, we pray that you would bless the ministry of the church as we seek to provoke faith in this part of London. And we thank you for our partnership in so many ways with different organisations, such as we've heard about today with the Racial Justice Advisory Board, with churches in Westminster, with the London Prisons Mission, and with Citizens UK. We pray for all in the church community who mourn and who are uh, unwell. We pray for Dawn following the death of her aunt. We pray for her and her family as they mourn her. We pray for those who are struggling with life at the moment. Help each of us to reach out to them, to those around us, to comfort those who are ill and to comfort those who mourn. So we thank you, God, of transfiguration and transformation for that amazing vision that we've heard today of just the extent of your love and grace. May we go out now with our faces shining from our encounter with you today. Amen. For our closing hymn, we're going to sing William Blake's wonderful apocalyptic vision of the transfiguration of society as he envisages the kingdom of God being builded here in the face of all of the dark satanic forces of privilege and oppression that seek to stifle it. And it ends with an invitation for each of us to recommit ourselves to the work of transfiguration in this world. We stand and sing the hymn Jerusalem.
Go into God's world with love, hope, joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer be with you all today and forevermore. Amen.